As a young mom, when one of my kids came running to me in tears, my first reaction was to wrap them in my arms and hold them tight. I might stroke their hair or rub their back. Extending such gentle care to myself hasn't come naturally, but now I understand that the need for self-nurturing is ongoing. I am learning that a walk is not a luxury. Rest is not laziness, and time is my currency to spend on my well-being. Watching my once vibrant, never sick a day in her life mother waste away from cancer in her 40s educated me about the usefulness of my body. It may not be perfect, but it walks, it talks, and generally it works pretty well. I have even been told that I'm an excellent hugger. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. Hello, welcome to Daring to Tell. I am Michelle Rado, and this is a season one finale of sorts. Today, I am inviting back three writers from this past season for an episode with a theme about mothers and the challenges of Mother's Day. All our guests today have a few things in common. They're all writers with their own memoirs, they're all mothers, and they all have lost their mother, and that's about where all their similarities end and where we will begin because for so many women, Mother's Day is not always the joyful celebration that we see advertised and promoted and talked about all around us. So Peg Conway, Robin Fisher, and Betsy Armstrong and I are all part of a writing group that gets together regularly on Zoom. And recently, Peg brought this idea up, which I thought was a really good observation. Mother's Day can be challenging for people who don't fit the standard mold. Yes, plenty of people can and do celebrate their mothers, and that's really important. Moms do deserve so much honor and recognition because mothering is so fundamental and so crucial, really, for everyone. However, as Peg pointed out, there are plenty of people who find Mother's Day to be really painful, and for many different reasons. So that was why Peg suggested initiating ways to help women to reclaim and reframe the concept of mothering ourselves. And so she hit on this idea of a Mother Yourself Day as a virtual event. We will tell you more about that at the end of the episode, but Mothering Yourself is the theme for this bonus episode of Daring to Tell because I thought, yeah, it's pretty daring to take on the challenges that can crop up alongside a traditional Mother's Day. So with that, we go to our conversation with Peg Conway, Robin Fisher, and Betsy Armstrong. So I will introduce everyone in the order that they will read. First, Peg Conway. Her memoir, The Art of Reassembly, will be out this fall. She is living in Cincinnati, is the mother of three. And are you a grandmother, Peg? Yes. And also an energy healer. Peg, your mom died when you were seven. And when was it that you decided to write about losing your mom? It was probably about five or six years ago. I 
started real what I really realized is that I had been writing about it just in kind of backdoor ways and then when I kind of had that realization I thought hmm, maybe I should write about it with intention not just sort of oh it pops up here it pops up in this setting kind of thing well we will hear a little bit more about that nice to have you here today thank you um, next Robin Fisher. Robin is a writer and a pilgrim. Robin's memoir is called You Remind Me Who I Am About Losing Her Husband to Louis Body Dementia just three years ago. Robin is shopping for the right agent right now, and she's from the Pacific Northwest but living in Maui. She has three kids and two grandbabies, the youngest just five weeks old as of this recording. Congrats to you on that. And Robin, your mom died, I think this is correct, when you were in your 50s. Is that right? Before your husband got sick? Yeah. Okay. And I just will say about that, I don't think that it really matters when we lose our mother it is a primal loss mm. what what was that like for you well for me and hi everybody I'm Robin for me I moved my mother up to take care of her in her final days that was 2013 2015 she died and then 2016 is when I had to just one month later quit my job to care for my husband who died a year and a half later so to be honest with you Grieving was put aside, I think, and mm. it still comes up now and then. So it was all part of the big crisis for me, which right now in Maui, I am sort of doing this self-reinvention project. I'm riding out the pandemic here so that I can go back and see my grand, my brand new granddaughters, hopefully pretty soon. Excellent. Um, and Betsy also just completed her memoir. It is called The Mother of Decisions, A Motherless Daughter's Journey to Adoption. Betsy's also agent shopping right now and living in Chicago land. Is that what you guys call it there in the Midwest? You are also a counselor and an intuitive eating coach. And Betsy, your mom died when you were 23. You are going to share more about that story in your essay. So I'm actually curious to hear a little bit about the intuitive eating part of what you've done and do, which feels like a form of self-acceptance. What, what has that done for you? Yes. Um, actually, although on paper, it probably doesn't look like intuitive eating would be related to any mother loss or family situation. Um, actually, what's not in my essays, um, but I have written about separately, is that food was a big challenge in my family. The stepdad that I speak about in this essay was had an eating disorder, and that definitely shadowed everything in our lives, the relationship we had, the way he interacted with us. And it really instilled some dysfunctional ideas, I would say. And so part of my healing after losing my mother was definitely addressing my challenges with my body and food and the emotions that were all attached to that. So I really found intuitive eating and just loved the way it is it is a self-care way of eating. It is 
the way only your body, your intuition tells you to eat. So I love that it connects that self-care aspect with food when I think for many of us, food can be a very fraught sort of relationship. We have a fraught relationship with our bodies often. And so that's why I ended up doing that in addition to writing about all of this. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that connection before about your stepdad. So that's really interesting as well. Well, I am very excited to have you all here. We're going to hear everybody's essay today. And so to get this going, Peg is going to read first today. Peg, why don't you read the title of your essay? And then we will do sort of like we've done with Daring to Tell. We'll talk a little bit afterwards once you are completed. Well, its title is very straightforward. What does it mean to mother yourself? After we began our conversations, it really invited me to delve more deeply into what that means to me. And it, I find that the more I think about it, the more convinced I am about it. Like, hey, I, I really believe this. I really dig deeper and find myself more compelled. What does it mean to mother yourself? I felt a distinct lack of maternal care for most of my life. My mom died of breast cancer when I was seven years old, and many people filled pieces of the mother role for me, including my older brother, my dad, my grandma, and later my stepmother. All the basics were in place, food, clothing, shelter, school, but we didn't talk about our feelings at all. This gap in nurturing left me quite deprived, so I filled the vacuum by mothering others. In childhood, after my mom's death, I became that perfectly responsible and self-sufficient kid. I looked out for my younger brother. I could fix dinner by age nine. As an adult, when I married and became a mom myself, I immersed myself fully in raising our three children. Their physical, mental, and emotional thriving became my highest priority and greatest joy. Always, though, while I might appear poised and capable on the outside, inside my brain, there's a strong inner critic that keeps up an insidious monologue. Much of the time, I barely even realize the negative self-talk is happening. It's a steady, droning noise, like traffic behind your house. Once my kids left the nest and I embarked on new pursuits as a writer and energy healer, the self-critiquing voice gained traction. Who do you think you are? Nobody cares about this. Being unmothered as a child strengthens this voice, I'm sure. Over the past year, the extent to which inner self-criticism inhibits me has become more apparent. Analyzing the dynamics closely, I learned that the subtle barrage of negativity eventually leads to a feeling of disconnection, of not belonging. With this awareness, I'm better able to say, oh, I'm in a negative spiral. Countering with positive talk alone, you can do this, keep going, doesn't cut it. Sharing with others and receiving encouragement also helps but is not enough by itself. Body-centered practices like gestures, movement, and meditations, many of which I learned in my energy healing studies, have helped me the most. I've created a routine for myself using these techniques because they clear negative chatter and ground me in the present. As a young mom, when one of my kids came running to me in tears, my first reaction was to wrap them in my arms and hold them tight. I might stroke their hair or rub their back and hum soothing sounds until they were ready to tell me what was wrong. Extending such gentle care to myself hasn't come naturally, but now I understand that the need for self-nurturing is ongoing, never over and done. 
Thank you. That was great. So here's my first thought about this one. What I loved was the absolute intuitive pull to hug your kids, nurture them. And that may or may not be as intuitive to ourselves. And here's my question, because I'm curious to know also more about the energy healing. Does this, does this connect to energy healing in any way or how might it? Well, I think my awareness of it was contributed, was begun with the energy healing studies, because part of like when I am going to offer energy healing to a client, the first step is to center and ground myself. And so that's, it's just a very present moment thing that's very body centered. And it's not a thought process. It's not verbal. It's not rational. It's a moment of connecting to the body in the present without a lot of judgment and thinking. And I, I think that just sort of started a process. I think I've always been kind of body aware. Like when I feel my emotions, I am aware that my stomach is tightening or my throat is constricting. Maybe the energy healing offered a counter to those distress feelings to a noticing of a, Hey, I'm a cal- I'm calm. What's going on here. How can I cultivate more of this? And I also think in the pandemic year, of being home more and having less outside, you know, stimulation, it was an opportunity to be more internal and more reflective on, okay, how's, how's today going? <laughs> or, mm-hmm. oh, I noticed my reaction in this situation is what is going on here kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely been a more contemplative time. And I so appreciate, and I'll say kind of envy the body awareness, because that's been the thing that I've struggled with. I've like had to learn how to pay attention to my body. So that whole idea is very intriguing to me. So I'm curious to hear more about that. So caring for others, I'll go back to the unintuitive part. Is it unintuitive to care for ourselves in this way? Do you find? I don't think we get a lot of encouragement or modeling of it. So therefore it may be that sort of intuitive muscle is undeveloped especially as women in our culture, we're always encouraged to care for other people, depending on what sort of, you know, your family environment is. Um, In my family growing up, I don't think I, I would not say that I was expected to do many of the things that I did, at least not initially, but I did because it soothed my own. And then nobody stopped me. No one said, oh, you're too young to do that. You know, they were like, oh, okay, she can handle that. That's good. Um, And I don't think it was anything, you know, malicious. It was just the way it was. Right. And I, that was another thing actually that I found interesting because when mothering, as it were, was absent when you were a child, you filled in that void. So this is a void that sort of happens or, or, or so, something's going to fill that void and you filled in with all these innate sort of caretaking things. How did you know? Was it the stuff you had seen your mom do, even though you were only seven when she died or? Um, Probably it was just sort of that right there in front of me. And I think, I think my own inherent personality of being, you know, fairly organized and I think I'm organized and responsible anyway. And so I brought those tools Uber to a situation that felt a little out of control. And I do want to say my family life was not terribly out of control. I mean, 
my father was not well suited to being a single father, but I mean, we were not neglected. There was no like actual neglect of any dire situation, but just that emotional piece, which is where I focus so much was really not what I needed. I did not get what I needed. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. We will move on to Robin next. Your essay, it is called The Fish Pond. Go ahead well, and read when you are ready. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I just kind of want to say, Peg, the, the idea, the emotional side is always like what we try, even, even when our mom is around, it's like, there's always a little bit that we have to do ourselves, you know, and, and when my, let me back up a little bit. When I, um, when I became a widow and started, I, I went on a long walk across Spain, did the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage. What has helped me the most in my grieving and in my self-care has been walking and writing. And my, my essay is called The Fish Pond, and I will start now. At the end of the beach where I walk regularly here in Maui is a historic loco ia, a fish pond. Centuries ago, ancient Hawaiians engineered these rock walls in the water along the shore as a way of allowing their sustenance to come to them. They studied the moon, tides, and currents in order to create the local ia. Small fish would swim in, grow in the pond, and be harvested when the time came, providing food for the village. The ancients knew how to allow Mother Earth to provide for them with grace and ease. The local ia reminds me that I too can engineer a life that mothers and nourishes me with grace and ease. There were a lot of years that I didn't do that. I juggled too many responsibilities, tried too hard, and lived too often in a consciousness of lack. There were many times I felt out of balance with my life, not enough time, money, or energy. But there were also times I felt powerful and creative when I allowed myself a glimpse of being in the flow. Then the time would always come when I needed to slow down and rest and didn't. I didn't either because of my job, outside responsibilities, or because of a bubbling internal panic that I wouldn't get the flow back if I stepped away and rested for too long. Or the biggie, I might let someone down. I can't let others down, I'd tell myself. So I'd simply push through the exhaustion and pain in those days rather than listen to what my soul and body were telling me. As an adolescent and then a young woman, I didn't want to be mothered. Mothering to me meant being told what to do or being made to feel guilty for my choices. I wanted to find my own way, but I liked knowing that my mom was always there if I needed her, a home base, Jobs required my husband and I to move to another state, so I raised my kids away from our families, which I sometimes feel guilty about now that I am a grandmother. Then, as time and life cycles happen, I moved my mom to be near me in her final years, and I became her mother. My mom used to say, I have to hurry up and get all these chores done so I can sit down and relax. I heard myself utter the same nonsense in my juggling too many things days. I don't do that anymore. I am learning that a walk is not a luxury. Rest is not laziness and time is my currency to spend on my well-being. I am learning that when I'm truly in the flow, I have to give myself over to it completely. 
so that it can take me where I need to be. This is mothering myself. If I try to hold on to it, steer it, control it, or push it in any way, I will lose it. I believe that the universe conspires for me, even though I forget sometimes. In this self-reinvention season of my life, I am working toward the creation of my own personal loco ia, an internal feat of engineering that allows for the flow to exist. With it, I learn how to allow Mother Earth to provide for me with grace and ease. I love the grace and ease and what a great example that is of the idea of these fish swimming in and it's very, it makes me want to take a deep breath. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and one question I have that is something that I feel like I know the answer to, but I'm not sure everyone hears it the way I do. What is the flow for you? Oh. I guess that is when life is working, things are working, you know, specifically, you know, we talk in a writing group, we talk about it as when you sit down to write and you don't have to fight the words, they just come. And that's true for other parts of life as well. You know, whatever you're doing, I mean, you know, don't you have those days where you just feel like you're bumping into walls all the time, like things just aren't working out and you're just pushing too hard. And, you know, it's just, just always something going wrong. And those are the days you got to step back, you know, or those are the times you just have to say, okay, this is not the right thing right now. And, and kind of reassess. It's easy to just get into that push, 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 push. Well, for me, I'm going to just speak for me. It's easy for me to get into that put. That was the models I had. Go, 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 go. Mm -hmm. So the flow is not easy and it is easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. What I like about the flow or how I refer to it, it is simple, but simple is not easy. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one way I think about it at least. And you do tap into another, you use one of my keywords. It's my all time favorite, which is listen. Yeah. Listen I heard inwardly. I heard- I heard Anne Lamott say recently, it's not about working hard. It's about resisting less. So Hmm. this is what I'm working on. And we all are. We, I like that you are a pilgrim. We are all pilgrims and trying to figure out what is next. Yeah. Yeah. And Betsy is next. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of what is next, thank you for reading that, Robin. Um, Betsy, before you read, I have one question. What is a genogram? Ah, good question. Um, A genogram is a physical uh, manifestation of your family tree. But instead of just showing the relationships and who comes from where, it also shows um, the actual relationships. So for example, a broken line means that that relationship is severed. Um, A jaggedy line between two people means that it's a complicated or difficult relationship. X's mean people have died. So it's much more than a family tree. It's actually, it shows sort of the emotional connections of a family. And so, yes, you'll hear about it in my essay. (laughs) Yes, that, well, that's, 
Great, because I think I've heard of them before, but I didn't know some of those details. So that helps kind of give a more visual picture to what we're going to hear about. So why don't you read your piece? You can introduce it and then just go ahead and read whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, well, this piece is something that didn't make it into my memoir. So I had a piece of it, but when you, um, for this podcast, asked about writing about mothering myself, this is what came up for me. So the connection is more toward the end when I realized how, what I did to, um, to kind of recover from some of this stuff that I'll be reading about. So it's called, What Will You Do With All This Loss? <clears throat> what will you do with all this loss? The question stared at me, written starkly in red ink across the top of my homework, a family genogram I prepared during my first semester of graduate school. At 31 years old, I was training to become a therapist and the learning process required a fair amount of soul bearing. Normally I reveled in self-discovery, but my teacher's reaction to my finished assignment cut me to the quick. I blinked back tears, seeing the truth of my family obvious in the broken geometry and slashed lines of the diagram. I cleared my throat so I wouldn't cry and took stock of my losses. My mom, dead when I was 23. Dad, dead when I was 29. Grandparents, all dead. My only brother, older, angry at me in the aftermath of so many funerals. A brief attempt at marriage had failed, and I'd broken up with the last guy who loved me only a few months before I started graduate school. Alone didn't begin to describe my situation. But the picture showed even more. I'd had a stepdad for 13 years too, my mother's second husband after my parents divorced. 10 days before mom died, stepdad had coerced her into secretly signing a new will, one which disinherited me and my brother completely. Stepdad then changed the locks on our childhood home, slammed the door on our keepsakes and shut us outside of our own memories. I never spoke to him again after her funeral. I lost my people, I lost the place I called home, and I lost my history. My teacher's questions stung. The red ink across the top of the paper reminded me of blood. What would I do with all of this loss? What the hell did she even mean by that? What could I do with all of this loss? I'd survived it. Wasn't me being there in class, alive, at school, wanting to help people? Wasn't that something? Somehow in her question, I heard blame that I hadn't done enough with this loss. All the loss that I never wanted at all, that I would have done anything to have avoided. When it happened, surviving it seemed like the best, the only thing I could do. Now it's been over 25 years since my teacher handed that assignment back to me. The genogram is long gone, but the question has remained. What have I done with all of that loss? Here's what I say now. I remember. Just because my family members are gone doesn't mean they are forgotten. I do believe that the losses I've experienced have made me strive to find fond memories and to hold them close. I write. I write a lot about loss. I read about it too. Not only does writing and reading help me make sense of my life, it connects me to others. Loss is one thing we'll all have in common one day if we don't already. I treasure things sparingly. Losing almost every physical remnant of my childhood certainly revealed to me what material things are essential to survival. Surprisingly few, it turns out. 
The flip side of this coin is generosity. I give as much as I'm able, as often as I can. I appreciate my health. Watching my once vibrant, never sick a day in her life mother waste away from cancer in her 40s educated me about the usefulness of my body. It may not be perfect, but it walks, it talks, and generally it works pretty well. I have even been told that I'm an excellent hugger. I get motivated. Losses help me remember that time is short. I should call that friend and tell her I love her. I should hug my kid today, kiss my husband right now, sign up for the fundraiser, vote, do something, be someone good for the world. I became brave. I quit the career that didn't fulfill me and went back to school in my 30s. I ran the marathon I wasn't sure I could finish. I adopted the kids when I was older and unsure. I stood up and read what I wrote in public. Once I realized I literally had nothing left to lose, being vulnerable became so much easier. More than anything, losses taught me to be grateful. At the end of each day, I've learned that focusing on the good stuff multiplies it. The more I appreciate, the more there is to appreciate. What's lost can never be replaced, but the blessings around me are truly exponential. Woo! That was so beautiful. I you. first will say, I can't wait till the day that I can find out how good of a hugger you are. <laughs> <laughs> all of I would you. love to hug all of you <laughs> and many more people actually yeah. <laughs> yes we are ready for hugs after a year plus of COVID man it has been tough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the thing that also sort of recurs to me about this essay is that line from your teacher I feel like this is a circumstance where hearing the question or hearing the statement could really make a difference. And you sort of really shoved it back in her face after 25 years, you know? I mean, this has stuck with you. Um, Talk about loss of all the things you lost and that did, uh, you probably don't have the piece of paper anymore, but you still, you've carried that with you. And I feel like we do have these pivotal moments in our lives where these things stick with us. And I was imagining, what will you do with all this loss? What will you do with all this loss? What will you do with all this loss? What do you think now that she meant by it then? And was it the same thing that you heard then? That's, if that makes sense, my question. It makes perfect sense because I I know that I heard it then as sort of a blame situation, like you haven't done enough. Um, But actually in retrospect, uh, I know that what she was, asking me was in a therapeutic sense with other people. What will I do with all this loss? Because it was a major reason why I chose to go back to graduate school, because I wanted to help people navigate the losses or the challenges in their life. And I know now, and I love this teacher. It wasn't, it was so abrupt when I got it back and I was one of those, you know, I want to be the teacher's pet. I want to get an A. I want to do it perfect. So I do remember drawing this out and using a ruler and, you know, making it so perfect. 
of course it wasn't, but um, it looked really good. And so I, I know that she, she meant it on the more deeper level of, you know, how can you use these experiences to further your practice and therapy and also help other people with it. But, but yes, it it was interesting and yes, it stuck with me all these years. And I wrote this originally probably about seven years ago. So it's, it's still stuck with me. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. The thing that sticks out to me is that each in, in each one of these stories, there's an underlying theme, if I can call it that, of patience and contemplation and most difficultly, if that's a word, with ourselves. So I don't know, um, how does that theme ring true for you, either about your own essay or what other people have shared here today? Like, what does patience play in, in this, in your life and where we're at today? I think I can say something about that. So I think that when all of this loss kind of collided and the incident of my stepdad um, disowning us, I didn't have time to have patience. I just needed to survive. It was really, uh, oh my gosh, (laughs) I'm alone in the world. You know, I'm in some ways... I was glad I was as old as I was when it happened because I had a job. I knew how to, you know, I paid rent on my own. So it didn't even occur to me back then that I had any choice, but to just keep going. (laughs) And it's only been all these years later that I really reflect back and go, wow, you know, I did a pretty good job of it, even though at the time I would have been, I'm a mess. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I think in, in retrospect, I didn't have time back then, but over the years, I've realized that it's a process and it cycles back over and over based on these things that come up like mother's day or, you know, any holiday or celebration where it's supposed to be happy, but it doesn't always feel that way because of these emotionally loaded situations. But yes, having patience, I think is, is a theme when dealing with these, these times of struggle. Yeah. And, and I think that that's obviously a very accurate statement to say when we're in the middle of survival, we can't think of anything other than the next minute. You know, there have been times when I feel like, okay, I can't think about tomorrow. I can't think about an hour from now. I only can think about like 10 minutes from now, if I'm lucky. So even allowing ourselves the permission to do that when we're in that mode, I think can sometimes be something to remember that's important. And Peg, you had your hand up. So Peg. I was just going to observe in our three stories, kind of similar to the patient's aspect is the, I see us all sort of reckoning with the things that have happened to us, each kind of having a sequence of things that have compounded and then reaching a point of working with it and how the things of the past are so present, like they come back or they're, you know, they're distant for a while, then they come back and how body centered it all is that, that that really, Mm -hmm. really struck me. Robin, do you want to? Oh, I just, wow. The body centered, what you just said. I mean, Betsy with food being a big important part and the energy healing for you, Peg and me, it's just the, you know, walking, getting back into my body was so 
it just became the most important thing. And I think, you know, crisis, when we're in crisis, it's a formidable teacher. There's no doubt about it. And I think it teaches what's the most important. So it's like you go, oh, I can't think of what's going on in the future, only right now. But right now, what you think about is just what's the most important thing. I think you have to give yourself permission to do that. You have to allow yourself to not do the things that you can't do or don't want to do or that aren't important. But then when you look back, I think looking back on the crisis from where we are now in our stages of life, like you said, Betsy, I look back and go, wow, I I did good. I didn't know it at the time, but I did good, you know? And I think that that is a really valuable thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there are times when I think back on my own self because I've kept journals for a long time too. And I go, wow, the Michelle from 10 years ago was doing this thing or Michelle from, you know, 20 years ago was doing this other thing. And I just have really tried to move away from having such frankly contempt for myself at times and being really unforgiving. And so this whole idea of mothering yourself, nurturing yourself has appealed to me. So I'm still getting there. <laughs> so I'm not, all of us. I'm not, we're all, all of us, all of us are still getting there. <laughs> yeah. And that is why I'll maybe move on to the event part of this as we in our group have been talking about, well, you know, Mother's Day, it can be tough for a lot of people. I personally rebel against so many standard holidays that people celebrate in typical ways. I'm just, I have said in my episode last week, how much I feel like an outlier on many, in many ways. So I do think that there's things about holidays that we should embrace and that are important. And I'm getting there with some of those things, but, but I do think that when we think about how we mark these times and what they mean to us in a way that is meaningful to ourselves in our own situation, that was why we said, and Peg, I don't know if you want to jump in here with just with the whole concept for this event, mothering yourself. And we are going to offer a 90 minute workshop. We want it to be fun and nurturing and to talk about the ways that maybe we can, should, uh, strategies. Do you want to take over what what this is going to be? This was kind of your brainchild. Right. The phrase mother yourself just kind of came to me one day. And I'm very active in the motherless daughters community, particularly among women who lost their moms young. And so Mother's Day is a big, big event that people try to support each other through. But I don't know where my impetus came from, but to me, it's even more than just women who lost their mother. It's like a symbol that we need to reinvent that mothering, the act of mothering surpasses all the cultural expectations, all the hallmark expectations, and that we can reframe it in any way we want to. And so I thought of all of us and our differing expertise and kind of bringing in a different facet of that um, in, in, in an interesting way for, for people coming up to the holiday. And so the workshop is scheduled for Saturday, May 8th, which is the day before Mother's Day. And it starts at 1 p.m. Eastern time, which is 10 a.m. Pacific time. 
and I'm not going to try to say all the others, but it gives you the flavor. I, I might say it wrong. Uh, it's $25 and the registration is available on Robin's website, which is, this will be in the show notes, but it's Robin with a Y, Passow, P-A-S-S-O-W, Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R.com on her website. And we welcome all experiences and interests and would just be a time of sharing and and having fun. I mean, it's, we're, we're planning it to be fun. We're yeah. going to laugh and play as well. Yes. Not just we'll, reflect. And- yes. I have said this, I think probably with almost every one of you, we talk about some painful experiences, but I think we end up having a lot of fun through it all in spite of that or past it or um, Robin will offer some journaling things and Betsy will offer some intuitive eating. I think the funnest part of it perhaps will be a snack, right? What's better? (laughs) Um, Robin, Betsy, any last thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, I just want to say this has been really fun and these essays have been fun to listen to and it's been fun to read. So, and Michelle, thank you so much for doing this. I do it because I love it. (laughs) So thank you all too. Definitely. Betsy. Yeah. I just want to say that um, the part of the workshop that I'm doing, the snack part is to learn to savor something that is decadent to you, whether it's savory or sweet and, um, and it's connected to emotional eating, but in a good way. So I'll, I'll give that as a little teaser. And I also just want to echo what, many of you have said, I mean, these are serious subjects, but we do have fun. And I think reflecting on all of it and and working these things out together is part of healing and part of this concept of mothering ourselves um, into the best people we can be and sharing those parts of ourselves. So I'm super excited to take part in it with everyone. And I hope that, you know, anyone who hears this, I hope you come because it's going to be a really nice day. I do want to clarify that it is on Zoom. I don't think I said that when oh, I announced yes. the logistics and right. every person will get their own decadent tree. It, anyway, that's all yes. going to be clear in the confirming information, but I just didn't want, I didn't want to be responsible for misleading no, anybody. No, good, good point. This is a Zoom, a Zoom event. Um, thank you all so much. This has been fun. I really enjoy all of the nurturing that we have done with each other through reading these. And thank you for helping me close out my my official first season of Daring to Tell. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So again, the Mother Yourself Day event will take place on Zoom Saturday, May 8th, the day before Mother's Day. It'll be at 1 p. East Coast time and 10 a. Pacific time. It will entail some of Peg's energy healing work, some journaling with Robin, and that savoring piece with Betsy. And I will be your master of ceremonies for the event. There is a link to the registration page in the show notes, or you can visit Robin Paso Fisher's website, which is R-O-B-Y-N-P-A-S-S-O-W, and Fisher is F-I-S-H-E-R dot com, Robin Paso Fisher dot com. I do hope you'll be able to join us 
for a little time to focus on self-nurturing and nourishing. It'll be $25 for the 90-minute event. Thank you again for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed this or any of the Daring to Tell episodes, please, I hope you will share with a friend or a fellow writer. I'm going to be taking some time off as I get ready for a second season. So it's a good time to also catch up on any of the other episodes that you might have missed along the way. As always, if you have any thoughts on the series, I do hope you'll email me. My email address is michelle at michellerado.com. Michelle with two L's, R-E-D-O dot com. And as always, thanks for being here and for daring to listen. Take care. Thank you.